number 206 has been asked that we make note of that and mark that and we'll certainly look forward to, to using that later in our service today. It perhaps would be well, though, to begin with a bit of an announcement that I failed to convey to, to Brother Kale, so my apologies to him for that. But it would be good for each of us to keep in mind that uh, our elders have chosen fit to make arrangements for, for a personal evangelism seminar here later this year. In fact, it's in November. So now that we've begun October, that's only a little over a month away. So may we keep in mind November the 4th and the 5th which is a Friday night and Saturday. Brother Rob Whitaker from the Willette Church of Christ will be with us to, to help us learn how to do evangelism on a personal basis, to help share the gospel of Christ. So please keep those dates marked on your calendar, November the 4th and 5th, our personal evangelism seminar again with, with Rob Whitaker. After having mentioned that, I would invite you to give some thought to a lesson I've entitled, Bible Truths of Marriage. For the next few moments, why don't we focus a spotlight and give some consideration to a rather beautiful topic as it's set forth for us in the Word of God, the whole idea of marriage. As we do that, let's begin with these introductory thoughts, if you would, with me, please. Isn't it true that one of the blessings that God has vouchsafed, that He has made available to you and I while we live in this flesh, is the beautiful and rich blessing of family and home and appreciation of those that we love so dearly. Our husbands, our wives, our children, that attribute of home is incredibly special to be sure. You'll notice on that slide, of course, the Bible frequently makes reference to the family and to marriage. And yet, as often as the Word of God makes discussion of it, isn't it still true that men often veer off on a differing path? Often supposing that they have a better idea, supposing that they have figured out a better way to do marriage than what the Bible describes, and yet it never is so. You and I need to appreciate that that biblical presentation of marriage has and shall stand the test of time. And so let's today revisit it. What are the biblical truths concerning it? And as we discuss it, may we embed these in our heart and continually use them to make our definition coincide with that of God. No wonder as you close that slide with me. Some of these lessons, of course, are so incredibly familiar as we study the Word of God, but so often the world attacks it in so many levels. And so, observation number one. Isn't it true that we learn something immediate about the origin of marriage? It's a fascinating thing to comment that often, as one reflects upon how an entity begins, that will speak volumes about the mission of that entity and what it shall, in fact, stand for. And with regard to marriage, the Bible is abundantly clear, isn't it? It originated in the mind of God. It originated as He made a specific and proactive appreciation to bring it into reality. Marriage was not an afterthought. Have you and I ever thought of it that way? On the sixth day of God's creative activity, He found He fashioned man, Adam. 1 Corinthians 15.45 says Adam was the first man. He was the very first one. And yet immediately we find this record soon thereafter in that same chapter. A deep sleep was brought upon Adam. A rib was taken from his side, and from that rib God made a woman. Notice, this wasn't Adam's idea. 
God brought the sleep on Adam. God removed the rib. God fashioned the woman. And God brought Eve to the man. And it was Adam who said, She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And then at that point, you and I appreciate God married them. Amazing as that appears, notice how distinct that is. Marriage then was not the idea, the brainchild, if you please, of some scholarly group of individuals somewhere. It's not that marriage was perceived to be a betterment for society based on human estimation. God designed it, and He originated it. In Matthew chapter 10, verse number 6, here, centuries later, of course, Jesus was walking upon the earth at the time, and when asked about the features of marriage, it was Jesus who said, from the beginning God made them male and female. When our Savior made that declaration, isn't it amazing the beauty then that corresponded to that marriage? Here were Adam and Eve living in Eden, and all the prestige and the wonder and the beauty, not only with their relationship with one another, but that they enjoyed with God. But then it was, they chose to sin. May you and I make this fundamental observation. Sin did not dissolve the marriage. It didn't. After the marriage, they were st after their sin, they were still married. Now they tried to clothe themselves, and God ultimately did a better job of it than they but the sin did not remove the institution of marriage. And so, as you and I reflect upon that truth, isn't it a fascinating thing? That beautiful origin of marriage, as terrible as sin was, it didn't set the marriage aside. Maybe one last thing did would be this one. All throughout the Bible, don't you and I find a blessing that corresponds in many ways to the reality of those marriages? In the days of Noah, for example, who was it that ultimately heeded the message of God and who boarded that ark and thus enjoyed the safety that it made available? It was Noah and his wife, their three sons and their three wives. In other words, those marriages, as they remained intact and as they enjoyed the safety of what was available on that ark, can't we see here one more time the sweetness and the strength and the fortitude made available in marriage, in part because God originated it. Often what men founds and what he establishes crumbles into the dust as centuries roll on or because it wasn't founded in a way that's perpetual and permanent. But that isn't so of marriage. In fact, aren't you impressed that this idea of marriage is one that bubbles to the top on several occasions in Scripture. It's used in Ephesians 5 to help us understand the nature of Jesus to His church. And in Revelation 19, one more time it's used to describe the features of those who are blessed to be in heaven forever. We are the ones married to the Christ. He is the bridegroom, we are the bride, and we sit down at the marriage feast of the Lamb. And don't we all want to be there at that? How about lesson number two? What else does the Bible teach us, not only about the origin, what about its nature? When a man and a woman marry, it's not that they simply enjoy some kind of filial union. They are described in a fundamental way in the Word of God as those who now occupy one flesh. This man and this woman have entered into holy wedlock 
And as such, God describes them as comprising one flesh. In that text of Genesis 2, again, the very day that marriage began, in verse 24 of that chapter, God, in a rather powerful way, described this in these words, Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. They'll be one flesh. That was God talking. Man can never change or set that, that truth aside. But there are two other times in the Word of God wherein that identical phraseology occurs. One of them, as you can see, Jesus in a rather dramatic way in Matthew 19, when the Pharisees asked Him a question about marriage as a part of His answer, He said, Don't you know that He made them one flesh? And later in Ephesians 5.31, one last time, that unity, that oneness, again, is a feature that is well worth our attention, isn't it? Certainly, we should then help make sure our youngsters and even all who would enter into marriage realize that that is an essential and vital part of it, that unity described in words like these. Love, that's a part of what that one flesh is all about. Isn't it true that Jesus loved His church to the point He died for it? Ephesians 5, 25. And so, husbands, you love your wives. That oneness in flesh is so intimate, so fundamental, so penetrating, profound, and deep. That love is highlighted in ways like this. It is this volitional choice. But not only that, in Titus 2, 4, ladies, the women, the wives, are told to love their husbands with this word phileo, an emotional, strong, deep sense in which the love is highlighted that way. Either way, you and I appreciate that we know both have a vital part to play in the oneness of that flesh. After all, these two become best friends. This man and his woman, they share all the blessed joys of life, but they also share the pains, the hurts, the agonies that are there for one another. And that oneness, that one flesh, leads us to note the next idea. It is an honorable thing. Marriage, I know in some's eyes, if you read articles or various modern descriptions of it, it can often be tainted in such a way that it's rather perceived as being less than ideal. We do a great disservice to the Bible if we ever fall into that kind of description. Marriage is an honorable thing. God made it. And that honor is highlighted among other places of the verses that we noted read earlier. Marriage is honorable in all. Andrew read that from Hebrews 13.4 just, uh, just a moment ago. It's honorable in all. Although men may on occasion look upon it differently... Certainly you and I shouldn't. And that honor perhaps is seen in verses like Proverbs 31, verses 10 and following. Over the last number of verses of that chapter, there is that beautiful description of the virtuous woman whose price is far above rubies. And among the descriptives of her, her husband safely trusts in her. And not only that, she is clothed in honor. Marriage is an honorable thing. It should be honorable for a woman to be a wife, and for a man to be a husband. To give his dutiful, one flesh attention to her just as she does to him. That oneness is a rather blessed nature. And perhaps one final thing. It does provide 
a very profound and deep companionship. Genesis 2.18 had highlighted that among the things God saw in His creation, one thing was not good. The man was alone. There was no helpmeet for Adam found, and yet God remedied that situation, and He remedied, remedied it by, of course, the fashioning of a woman. That companionship highlighted and seen in that way is also a part of the honor as well as the love of the one flesh. Maybe one final thing as we close that. Doesn't that highlight that if marriage is in fact a matter of one flesh, then if one or the other of the marriage partners is engulfed in and is overwhelmed by selfishness, that will harm that marriage in the sense that it will be less than what it could be. And therefore we as husbands and as wives strive to embody that selflessness that is characteristic of one flesh. What's better for my wife? Even as she would be quick to say, what is in the best interest and welfare of my husband? Observation number three. In addition to these two having to do with the nature and the origin, what about the participants in marriage? I suppose that this discussion will be a little different than what that wording may suggest, but I chose that for this reason, to make it a memorable appreciation in this way. When you and I attend a wedding ceremony, we so lovingly see the bride and we see the groom and we appreciate that as these two are entering into the marriage. So often, at least in modern society, there's where the appreciation stops. But that is not the way the Bible describes it. There are three involved in marriage. That's right, there's three. Let's develop that point in the following way. Marriage is thus then in that light more than merely a legal or civil contract between the man and the woman. Oh, it's true that that's part of it, but it goes much deeper than that. To that, might I direct your attention to Matthew 19.6. When Jesus made His discussion, His brief dissertation, if you please, on the subject, He said in that verse, "...whatsoever God hath joined together..." Let not man put asunder. And on that occasion, as the Lord made description of marriage, notice it was God that did the joining. It wasn't the officiant. It wasn't the minister. It wasn't the justice of the peace. It wasn't whoever the officiating man happened to be. It was God that joined them. That gentleman just happened to be the one legislating over the civil arrangement. But they were joined in heaven by God. To think about marriage in that, in that way then certainly lifts it far higher than any mundane or civil contract merely here upon earth. It's taken note of in heaven. It's etched and verified, if you please. It is authenticated in heaven. And that authentication takes you to note the next one. If it's true then that God joins them... He has the exclusive right to dictate who can and who cannot be joined. Marriage belongs to Him. He has the blueprint for it, if you will. And as such, He can determine who can lawfully be married and who cannot be. The laws of man may say something very different, but that can't change what the Bible says. It never has been able to change it, and it never will be able to change it. Forever, O Lord, Thy Word is settled in heaven to quote Psalm 119, verse 89. 
And if the Word of God is settled in heaven and it has made dictation with regard to who and who may not enter into marriage, that has settled that matter. Look at that next idea then with me. Failure to recognize that attribute. And that truth certainly is a large part of what can result in problems in a marriage. To be rather specific about it, aren't we basically making this statement? Inasmuch as those three are involved in the marriage. First, the man, the husband. Not only does he have obligation to the wife, he has first and foremost obligation to God to then deal in every way in that marriage in the way that the Bible has instructed him. And by the same token, not only does the woman, of course, react and respond to the man, but she first and foremost has honor and respect for the declaration of God, and so she will be true in that marriage to every responsibility God has given her in that marriage. And if each one of those participants, the man and the woman, will follow the teaching of the Bible in regard to that marriage, it will be a happy home. It'll be a home blessed by the sweetness of God and the declarations of it. And it'll be a home who really will be a foretaste of heaven. But it is in that regard, the last point is this one. That a marriage attempted without that understanding, a marriage that in fact fails in that regard, namely to recognize the third party nature of God's presence, that marriage will never be all it could be. That's not to say it may not enjoy a lot of blessings. and It's not to say it may not have a strong appreciation in many ways, but it will not have the ideal character it could have. For let's face it, the marriage as it's described in Genesis and onward are these two individuals who are living in the flesh for a while, but they're striving to live somewhere else after this life. And if the marriage isn't aiding in the accomplishment of that... It's missing out on its major thrust, its major objective. What about the next point? You'll notice our development of that one brings us also to this one. I thought it perhaps reasonable to use this as point number four, having reference to the permanency of scriptural marriage. Aren't you thankful that things are in many ways permanent? I think all of us have a desire for permanency. We know that the proclamations of man are whimsical and they're fanciful and often every fad will come and it will go. And often it's troubling because when we realize lives can be based on that, something so changeable, so movable, it makes a life that's unsteady. It makes a life that's not founded on a rock. And don't we remember that from Matthew chapter 7? The wise man built his house on a rock, but the foolish man built his house on the sand. The tragedy came, of course, when the winds came and the floods beat against it. What was built on the sand collapsed and fell. Why? Because it was founded on sand. But yet when those things beat against that house that was founded on the rock, it stood strong. Why? Because it was founded on the rock. Its foundation was steady. As Jesus then described it, He wasn't giving us a dissertation on house building. He was giving us a dissertation on life. Because He said the wise man is the one who hears the Word of God and does it. 
And the foolish man is the one who hears the Word of God and does not do it. Thus, when it comes to marriage, we've got to then be wise in that we hear the Word of God and do it, and that will then make a marriage that will stand the test of difficulty, affliction, and challenge. And as it endures those things, it'll do so and emerge in a victorious way from them. And so our development looks like this. The basic rule of the Scripture has been unchanged since it was founded in Genesis chapter 2. God made one woman for one man for life. Let's hear the Word of God on that point again. God made one woman for one man for life. That therefore means that He intended for that appreciation of marriage to have a permanency attached to it. Didn't He say in Romans 7 verse 2, a woman bound by the, by the, is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. That's pretty plain. A woman who has a husband is bound by the law to that husband as long as he lives. God intended marriage to be permanent. No wonder then as we reflect on so often what appears to be the easiness with which divorce is granted in our modern day. How often... Do we hear judges around the country say, Divorce granted, divorce granted, as he bangs the gavel? Well, the judge may grant it, but heaven doesn't sanction it. In fact, the Word of God is exceedingly plain in this point. It's only two things that then would permit a scriptural remarriage. One, death. We just read that in Romans 7, verse 2. The other, enunciated by Jesus Himself in Matthew 19, 9. Jesus on that occasion made this statement, Whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and marrieth another, committeth adultery. And whoso marrieth her which is put away, doth commit adultery. And that ends the possibilities. Any remarriage for either case than one of those two is not a scriptural remarriage. And yet our world so often makes light of marriage, entering into them, ending them it seems with frequency and with easiness, but it's not in harmony with God's will. God's view is permanency. As you and I add those things to it, might we then embed that thought within our heart and ensure that our youngsters and all of those whom we have the privilege of influence will consider marriage that way. It must never, ever be entered lightly. Because once you enter it, it's intended by God to last all your life. That kind of permanence, that kind of understanding makes marriage exceedingly special, doesn't it? The oneness of it. The lasting character. Look at some of those verses at the bottom. In Malachi chapter 2, verse 16, that of course is found in the Old Testament. And yet God on that occasion through the prophet Malachi, made this observation. There were those in ancient Israel who were living beneath an inferior covenant, that old law of Moses. They were ending and entering into marriages with looseness, and God said, I hate divorce. Malachi redirected their attention to understand what marriage ought to have been. Our modern society needs a double dose of that kind of appreciation as well, doesn't it? to understand how sweet, how lasting, how permanent God intended marriage to be. One last thought. Did you notice the statement, the penalty that occurred in Matthew 19, 9? 
it's certainly a, a sinful thing then to end a marriage unlawfully. But what about then remarriage or entering into another one unlawfully? Well, that's very severe. Because there Jesus Himself said, Whoso marrieth her which is put away. So here's a person who was not authorized to remarry. The man that marries her is committing adultery. Now that's strong, isn't it? That means we've got to be terribly careful and mindful of the fact then that the entering into a second marriage, and I understand how that there are those who say, but I love her. May I ask, are you willing to go to hell for her? Are you willing not only for her to be lost, but you too? That's exactly what Jesus said, because adulterers, Galatians 5, 19 to 21, will not go to heaven. Our Lord was very specific, wasn't He? And the sternness and the directness with which He taught it, He did it because He loves us. And He wants every one of us to understand God's viewpoint on marriage. Point number four has been its permanence. What about point number five? Number five is this one. I know that we mentioned this briefly earlier, but it's time to cast a stronger spotlight upon it. I did so because it would certainly seem that many in our modern society, as they even talk about it, they discuss it in a way that makes you appreciate they think it's less than honorable. I think we're even aware that some in religious circles do this. We're all aware, I know, the Catholic Church forbids their priest to marry. In their estimation, being married is a less holy state than being unmarried. That's nonsense. The Bible doesn't teach that anywhere. In fact, as you look at some of these verses we're about to consider, may you and I regard the fact that being married is honorable. Let's note that verse again. Marriage is honorable in all, and the bed undefiled. But whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. The confines of a scriptural marriage is an honorable estate. The inspired Hebrew writer declared it so. Now those of the first century were in need of that message. We today are in need of it. They in the Old Testament needed it. Consider some of these examples. May we never forget that our Savior, Jesus the Christ, attended a marriage feast in Cana of Galilee. Doesn't that highlight that He gave His approval that what was taking place there was good, it was honorable? If it wasn't, He wouldn't have attended because He never, ever sinned. And the fact that Jesus attended that marriage ceremony, in fact, He worked His first miracle there in John chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. By the fact that our Savior attended, His mother attended, that was an occasion then of great celebration and happiness and joy. And today, when a man and a woman enter into a blessed and proper union, it too is an occasion for joy. In Matthew chapter 8, verse 14, Peter the apostle was married. One of the apostles, Peter, was a married man. Again, might we say, when Jesus called Peter and the others to be apostles, He didn't tell him, now that you're an apostle, you've got to give up that wife. He never told him that. All during the time that Peter was an apostle, for those three years or so, we appreciate that up until, of course, the time that Jesus was crucified, the Lord never told him to give up his wife. 
Peter again is a married man. That takes us to 1 Corinthians 9, where in verse 5 of that chapter, reference is made to the fact many of the apostles were married and they had every right to lead about a wife who was a sister. Today we still appreciate the joy and the blessing that comes when a Christian man marries a Christian woman. For those reasons, you might note point number six as we close that slide and come to it. That sixth point asking us to think about reasons for marrying. First of all, we might say this, a person can live this life single and go to heaven. You could. Matthew 19 verses 10 and following tell us about that. But yet for those who choose to enter into marriage... What about, very quickly, some of these considerations? What reasons should cross my mind and yours as we give advice to those who are contemplating marriage? Be it our children, be it young people that we may know, be it older ones that we may happen to know who are contemplating marriage. What reasons ought to cross your mind? I think we'll all be impressed with what things are not on the list. You don't marry for lust. You don't marry for money. A lot of people seemingly do that. Can he or she take care of me and make sure that I'm provided for? I'm not saying that's unimportant. It ought not be the reason to marry. Why don't we start with this one? That conscious decision of love. Do I want to be with her the rest of my life? Does she bring me happiness and joy? Do I really like being with her? And of course, a lady could ask the same. Does he complete me in the sense that I love being with him? And it's a conscious decision on my part. It's true, there will be disagreements along the way, and there are going to be things he does or she does that aren't the way you would do them. But if you love what that person stands for, and the true nature of who they are, and it's somebody I want to be with, then you can see past those minor disagreements You can see past those particular features of momentary disagreement. That degree of love is highlighted in verses we've noted earlier in the lesson today. Husbands are told to love their wives like Christ loved the church in Ephesians 5. And wives are told to love their husbands in Titus 2.4. And that love is a conscious, volitional decision. Most of the time, the marriage vows are are described that way. In sickness and in health. If she gets sick, am I still going to love her? If all of her hair falls out, am I still going to love her? If he becomes injured in an accident, am I still going to love him? You promised you would. And what you promised didn't have anything to do with that physical outward appearance. You made a commitment, a vow that day, till death do us part. Love is intended by God to be that deep, and it's intended to be that fulfilling. Why don't we add this one to the list? Will this marriage please God? I would submit in light of the fact there's three parties in marriage, this ought to be a critical question. Is the, if I enter into this union, will it please God? There are several attributes, it seems to me, of that. First, is it then entirely in harmony with those proclamations of the Bible in that this union will be one upon which God would give His blessing? But there's another part to that. In asking, does it please God, 
Will I be a better servant to Jesus Christ because I'm married to her or him? Will this person help me be a better servant to God? Will I be a better servant, a steward, if you please, the things God has given me? If you can answer yes to that, that lends a great deal of appreciation to the nature of what that marriage can be along that line. What about the matter of godly character? Does this person honor God by what she stands for, who she is, and the person she wants to be? And by the same token, does he try to have godly character? Does he have a name that he wants to be a good thing in light of the declaration of God? Notice again, we said earlier, each one needs to first be wedded to God in as much as it will dictate how they're wedded to one another. Godly character. Every young Christian man ought to find a godly Christian woman. Someone who truly has the things of God foremost in mind and who wants to be a Christian young lady who dresses like it, talks like it, behaves like it. And by the same token, every young woman needs to find a Christian young man who isn't interested in sowing wild oats, but who's interested in living a life of which the God of heaven would be happy to endorse. She ought to be delighted to take the last name of a man like that. That godly character brings us to respect. Do you respect each other? It's forever true that God took a rib from Adam's side. He didn't take some skin off the bottom of his foot. It wasn't his intent that man trample over woman. It's also true he didn't take hairs off top of Adam's head either. She's not to lord it over him. He took a side of the rib from Adam's side. These two are joined together in that way. Now it's true the husband's the head of the wife. But if he loves her the way Christ loved the church, she'll have no trouble submitting to him. He will always have her best interest at heart, looking to what is in her best welfare and will strive to make those decisions leading that union to heaven. Oh, what a description that is. To that might we add companionship. It is true, this person's now my best friend. This person whom I have given my life to, I want to be with, and of course she would say the same. To think about that attribute of sharing of life that way, notice it not only includes those times of joy and celebration, when everything seemingly is flowing smoothly, but also when those troubles come. You get that report from the doctor that brings tears to your eyes and you're very upset about what it means. Aren't you delighted to have somebody there who will be with you no matter what those days are going to bring? Perhaps two more. For all these reasons we've highlighted today, there is a strong insistence then in the Word of God about how significant and how important it is to choose so very wisely. It is not an overstatement to say that the day you enter into marriage may very well be the day you decide your eternal destiny. If you marry a child of the devil, as much as you enter into marriage thinking that it won't be so, the odds are overwhelmingly in favor. That person is going to influence you in the way that's wrong. That's just the way it is. In order to make peace in the home and to not have arguments and fusses and quarrels, I'll do it, whatever he or she says, 
despite the fact that's not what God wants. It's not an overstatement again to say, in many ways, what happens on that day of the wedding will have a large bearing on where I'll spend eternity. If I marry a child of God, someone who wants to do what's right and for whom that is the primary de determining motivation, then they can help me do the same and vice versa. And so how often does the Bible encourage us, one and all, to be very careful? In the ancient Old Testament, of course, parents chose who their children married in most cases. We all remember that. Remember, Abraham went and got a wife for Isaac. Isaac didn't get to pick who it was. Daddy picked it. Now, you and I today live in a society very different than that, but isn't it true that those fathers and mothers would then choose somebody who was an Israelite? He didn't want them marrying someone outside the faith. And today, we as parents, too, long for that appreciation and that reality where it, our children also choose wisely in that way, choosing someone whose love for God is supreme and who wishes to please God and who is wholly committed to everything that He says. And so those verses I've listed for you, 1 Kings 11, Deuteronomy 7, Nehemiah 13, 1 Corinthians 7, all of them join in a powerful unison describing how that today we need to marry a Christian a Christian man needs to marry a Christian woman, a Christian woman, a Christian man. No wonder Paul told those Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 7, marry only in the Lord. Now that was given to widows specifically in that context. But the principle seems so very clear. Certainly other women need that advice just as much as a widow does. Let's close our lesson then with the following statement. Statistics show that the chances are at least three out of four, if not even higher. That one who, a Christian marrying a non-Christian, the Christian will become unfaithful. Because the directives of life, the emphases have been placed in a way that wasn't harmonious with texts like these. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. As we close the lesson this morning, our desire has been to describe Bible truths about marriage. And although they have been different than what the world often portrays, you and I want to ask this question, what saith the Scripture? Because we love what God says and we know He always does what's right. Genesis 18.25 And what He declares is always what cannot be set aside. John 10.35 and so the lesson is yours and mine today. We've learned these six things about marriage. First, its origin was of God. Its nature was embedded in the reality and character of what God set forth. That one flesh highlighted on three occasions in the Word of God. Beyond those two, we gave emphasis to the fact three involved in it. God intended it to be permanent. It is marvelously honorable. And the last thing we noted was this. The reasons given to us in the Bible are still those which would cross our mind relative to entering into marriage. Today, as we think about our relationship to Jesus Christ, are you a faithful child of God? Am I? The Bible says we must be, for only those in the church, faithful therein, shall enter heaven. 
Ephesians 5, verses 23 to 25. Today, if you're out of duty, though once a child of God, if you no longer are faithful, don't remain in that condition. Come at once. In a moment, we're going to sing a, a song of encouragement. The whole idea is to encourage you in the same way God does, inviting you to come, making available to you that opportunity for you to make confession, a statement of repentance, and to beseech us to pray to God on your behalf. If you have never become a Christian, may I say, what better day could there be than October the 1st, 2017? This is the day the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Today is the day of salvation. Harden not your hearts. To quote Hebrews 3.12 and 2 Corinthians 6.2, Repent of your sins, confess the name of Christ, and be baptized. The baptismal waters are ready. We'd be honored to not only be witnesses of that moment, but to celebrate with you as you become a child of God. Christ will add you to the church. Today, if we could be of help in either of these ways, we would wish to be, we would long to be, and we hope that you would take care of that even now while together we stand and while we sing.